at the outset, I would just say I can't tell you how good it is to see things relatively back to normal and to hear the good singing, and I can't help but think back to those times when we were here by ourselves <laughs> at the beginning of the pandemic in this sanctuary, and then, and then we had to lose the worship team, too. And then it was just Brandon and myself here for those weeks in an empty sanctuary. And I took pictures of this, you know, just empty. We had a, that camera on a ladder here and another camera right there. For a guy who was not like really gung-ho on live streaming our services, I got all in, right? <laughs> I was like, whatever lifeline we have, and it, it was uh, certainly a lifeline, but I'm so thankful just to hear you singing today. And I just love that when we sing, My chains fell off, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Isn't, isn't that how it was for all of us when we were converted? Our chains fell off. Well, we return today with our communion series on God's great grace. And I'd like you to recall that in this series, we have thus far considered God's grace to us under two headings, yesterday's grace and today's grace. And as we progress, we'll also, God willing, come to consider uh, tomorrow's grace. So in our time this morning, we're going to continue considering our need for God's grace to us in the present, that is, today's grace. And again, I'll say that I'm indebted to my study of Jerry Bridges' work on God's grace in this series. So we would do well to remember that this table which we see before us is, is set to remind us that we are dependent upon the grace of God, brethren, not just for our conversions, but also we are dependent upon the grace of God for the living of the Christian life. And so as we return to our topic today, bear in mind that God's law is not opposed to grace. That's why some theologians explain the relationship between law and grace in this way. They say believers are positionally righteous before God, but practically sinful. Well, we know that that's true, isn't it? We all know that as Christians, we have to still deal with what the Puritans said was remaining sin. Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 7. And because of this truth, we are consistently dependent upon God's grace in our daily lives as Christians. We are as dependent on God's grace when we obey. We need God's grace when we obey. Why? Because even our best offerings are still tainted with sin. And we are dependent upon God's grace in our obedience. But we are just as dependent upon God's grace when we completely fail God and we spiritually fall on our faces. And I wonder, did you fail Christ in this past week in a big way? Did you fail him? Well, be sure that after appropriate confession and repentance, that you don't wallow in your failure. Be assured that God's grace is sufficient even for your failure, even if it was big time. See then in this table a visible reminder that you live before God totally dependent upon his grace, never dependent upon your performance. And in turn, 
I wonder, were you able to accomplish good things for God and His kingdom in this last week? Well, remember that such accomplishments are only acceptable unto Him because of His grace, never because of the level of your performance. That's so we don't wallow in our perceived spiritual successes. So we meet again at this table. And we meet here because our Savior designed this time that we might be mindful that we are completely dependent upon the grace of God. Completely, totally dependent upon the grace of God. It is the air that we breathe. We're as dependent upon God's grace as we are as we take in our next breath to oxygen. Can't live without it. It's the air that we breathe. Indeed, it is when we meet here that we should together ever exclaim, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. But another important reason for the worship of this table is to remind us that we have been freed from the curse and the condemnation resulting in the breaking of God's law. Because we are all equally lawbreakers. The elements then served here point us to Jesus Christ and they point us to his, work, to his work on our behalf. You see, when Christ saved us through his finished sacrifice, he removed our guilt and he removed our shame and he replaced those with his own robes of righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Naked and foul and undressed we approach Christ. And as we walk away, we're clothed in the splendor of his righteousness. But as we've seen, this work of Jesus Christ on our behalf doesn't mean that we walk away free to do whatever it is we want to do again and live in whatever way that we want to live, claiming the grace of God as a license for our lives. Doesn't mean that. Being clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness doesn't mean that there's still no law for us to obey as Christians. Just because we don't merit God's grace through our obedience or our disobedience does not mean that our obedience doesn't matter. So we'll see again, the reality is that if we have a biblical understanding of grace, we will indeed strive to obey God's more, not less. There's a funny perversion of Christianity, which is popular today. It's very popular today. And, and, and you can see it where, you know, pick a social media site, pick a website. You can see it. Hey, you can claim Jesus as your Savior, but he doesn't have to be your Lord. You can claim Jesus as your Savior and live whatever way you want to live. You can claim to be a hundred things and add Jesus to that. And those hundred things are very often the very things that Christ has called us out of and calls us out of. Now, brethren, we have to have a biblical understanding that grace leads us to strive to obedience more, not less. But in that, we realize that our attempts at obedience will always drive us more and more into the open arms of Jesus Christ. Because it's in him alone that we find our merit, both when we succeed and when we fail. So, along this line of grace and law, last time we came around the table, we considered the dangers of what is known as hyper-grace. 
we considered the relationship between law and grace, and then we talked about the balanced Christian life. I remind you of those only because we're going to take a similar pattern today, and today we're going to continue with this theme and consider our first point, not under the law, but under grace. What does that mean? Our second, two improper responses to God's law, and then the third, the dangers of legalism. Okay? So let's consider our first point. Turn to Romans chapter 6, the passage that was read for us this morning, Romans chapter 6. And as you turn there, we're going to just remind you, this is the point, not under law, but grace. Let's talk that through, because that is, as we've said before, and we've looked at this before, that is an abused verse in the current culture in which we live. Now, one version of that, Romans 6.14, you see it in your Bible, Romans 6.14, one version reads, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Another translation renders, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And a third translation says, For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So sort of the the preface of each of those verses uh, changes, but the suffix remains the same in the verse. Not under the law, but under grace. So I just want you to see the common promise that we see in these translations. Sin shall not be your master. Sin shall not be your master. It's interesting, in the Greek, the word used here for master is kyrio, and it literally means will not be Lord over you. Sin will not be Lord over you. Listen to me, saints. Some of you have to stop believing that your sin is greater than your Savior. You have to stop believing that. You are believing a lie whispered in your ear by the enemy, shouted at you from the world, and sadly, even from some pulpits. When you are saved by Christ, when you are saved by his grace, you're made a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. You have a new Lord. It's not your sin. It's Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And please, stop believing that your sin is greater than the resurrected Lord. You have to stop. You just have to stop. (laughs) I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever man may say, but he can't help me with this. I've tried. I fail. I can't get, I can't seem to get any success. God's just going to have to do what? Accept me. No, he's not. God saved you. He saved you. He's made you new in Jesus Christ. Sin, the promise of Romans 6.14, will not be Lord over you. It's easier sometimes at the front door. It's easier sometimes to say, well, this is just too hard. Pastor Dunn doesn't get it. He doesn't know the struggles. He doesn't understand what... That's right, because I, of course, am perfect. 
<laughs> and if you want the evidence that that is not true, you can speak to someone who knows me well, whose name is Beth. We're all sinners. We're all sinners saved by grace. And we're all tempted to let the sin be Lord in our lives. But Jesus will not have us serve two masters. Okay? Not under, not under this condemnation of being lorded over, mastered by sin. And I don't care what the sin is. If it, I don't care what the sin is. If it's the sin of, of, of overeating. If it's the sin of overindulging in alcohol. Drunkenness. If it's a sexual sin, I don't care what the sin is. It's never Jesus and your sin. It's always Jesus. You understand? This is, this is coming from the word of God to us. Sin will not be Lord over you. Why is that the case? Now, Paul gives the answer. Because we're not under the law, but under grace. So let's again just... Helpfully define our terms law and grace. The reference to law here is used at least for two reasons by Paul. Number one, under the law, sin increases. The the inference is that law lords over its subjects. It condemns and brings them into virtual slavery. It faces them with their guilt and uses that guilt as a manacle to keep them in helpless subjection, says Sproul. By the way, that's the freedom of the world. They're manacled to their sin. They are in helpless subjection to their sin. That's why Paul writes about not being under the law, but being under grace. Now, the Greek word for uh, the phrase for grace, being under grace here, is hypocharon. And this is important because according to Paul's usage here, grace appears as a disciplinary power to show that grace is not a license to sin. That's the meaning in the Greek. Grace serves as a disciplinary power. Well, that takes us then to the second reason for the usage of the term law here. Secondly, the law serves as a corrective guide and, again, disciplinary power. This means that the law is still operative in the life of the Christian. It is the standard of the moral law that we can measure our spiritual growth and maturity by. It's how we know we're looking more like Jesus. It's how we know whether or not we're living according to righteousness and holiness and the issues of sanctification. Now, as those in Christ, we know that we are no longer under the curse of the law's condemnation for sin. Brethren, we have been freed from the curse of the law. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. (laughs) We've been freed. And it's in this way that we're to understand not being under the law. We are freed from the law in terms of its condemnation over us, its curse over us. So in that regard, yes, we're not under the law, praise God. In Christ, we've been freed from living under the threat of the law of God's punishment. We've been freed from the power of sin and its condemnation under the law. And in this way, we are not under the law, but under grace. Not under the condemnation of the law, but we're under grace. Paul makes clear that we've also been freed to be able to obey, then, 
the moral obligations of God's law. It's not that we're under grace and now we have no law to obey. It's now the law is not our condemnation. But it doesn't mean it's taken away in terms of our adherence or obedience to it. In fact, you're in Romans 6. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 6. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of your own passions. Isn't that what he says? Isn't that how most Christians live today? I'm a slave to my passion. I can't name the passion, whatever it is. I'm a slave to this. Don't talk to me about it because I'm a slave to it. No. That's not the Christian life. Aren't you thankful? Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of what? Righteousness. You became a slave of righteousness. In making this statement, Paul was saying that in God's kingdom... There is still law to be obeyed even for us as New Covenant Christians. But what aspect of law are we to obey? Okay, so we've established that we still have to be under law. The under grace part of here is the condemnation of the law. We're not under that. But we still have a law to live by. A kingdom without law is a kingdom in anarchy. God's kingdom isn't a kingdom in anarchy. So there's still law to live by. Well, that takes us to understand... In the Old Testament, there were three kinds of law. Calvin and the Reformed faith have rightly distinguished between three types of law in the Old Testament. Number one, there was civil law, the way the Israelites were to be governed. Number two, there was ceremonial law, the means of sacrifice by which the Israelites were to worship. And thirdly, there was moral law the standard of God's law, which dealt with their daily actions. Civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Now, of these three, only one is still in effect for us as new covenant Christians, and that is the moral law of God. R.C. Sproul states, we make a distinction between moral laws and civil laws and ceremonial laws, such as the dietary laws and physical circumcision, that's helpful because there's a certain sense in which practicing some of the laws from the Old Testament as Christians would actually be blasphemy. Paul stresses, for example, in the book of Galatians, that if we were to require circumcision, we would be sinning. So we're talking about the moral concept of the law, the moral aspects of the law. That's why you don't don't fall into this trap. If people will say to you, and you say, well... uh, Homosexuality is a sin. Oh, what about eating shellfish? Oh, what about eating, what about stoning? Oh, what about, you get into all that, you say, well, we're not messing around with that. That was part of the uh, ceremonial law. We're not messing around with that. What about the moral law? What about you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain? You see? We have to be Sharp in our faith. We're not living in a culture that we can sail through. We have to be sharp in our faith. You have to know what you believe. You have to know why you believe it. So Paul's use of the law here is to show us the difference that the law takes on for us as Christians, listen, after we've been given the grace of God through our, to us in Jesus Christ. After. 
So what has changed with regard to the law and then and the Christian? Well, MacArthur, I think, puts it well when he says, the believer is no longer under the law as a condition of acceptance with God, an impossible condition to be met and designed only to show man his sinfulness. So what then does Paul mean in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law? What is our freedom from the law? It is being freed from the curse and the condemnation of the law. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So we can say we've indeed been set free from the bondage and curse that results from breaking the law, and we have been called to freedom from works as a means of obtaining any merit with God. But brethren, we have not been called to freedom from the law as an expression of God's will for our daily living. We know that God cannot do away with his moral law since it reveals his unchanging moral character. So the moral law of God will always remain the same. As such, the moral law of God always will serve to drive us to Jesus Christ and to drive us to the gospel. It is the law that teaches people their need for Christ. And further, because of God's grace, the redeemed are now able to be counted as righteous as they progressively learn to live out the law's righteous requirements upon them in their daily life. So the three kinds of law in the Old Testament, the moral law is the only one which remains for us as new covenant Christians. Christians are not under the Old Covenant and its stipulations in terms of civil and ceremonial law, yet we're still called to imitate Christ and to live as people who seek to be pleasing to the living God, says Sproul. Now, how do we do that? We do this by being obedient to his law, which is why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my suggestions. That we said? If you love me, it's conditional. If you love me, that's going to be seen. How will it be seen? It'll be seen by you doing what I tell you to do. It'll be seen by you keeping my commandments. In 1 John 5, 3, we read this. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Those of us who have been called out of a life of slavery to sin and are brought into life in Jesus Christ and made slaves of righteousness know right well that the burden of the law for us as Christians is far easier than the burden of unrighteousness lived in the world. The guilty conscience, the shame. You, you, you wonder, as I've said before, why it is that so many people in our culture struggle with panic attacks and anxiety and depression and so forth. It is exactly what God says in Genesis chapter 4. If you do right, you'll feel right. If you don't do right, guess what? You're not going to feel right. And a pill and a drink, and a sexual liaison is not going to take away your guilt. And it's not going to take away your shame. Only the righteous robes of Jesus Christ can do that. Of the significance then of the law for the Christian, Jesus himself states in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 18, listen, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus comes to fulfill the law, to do what the first Adam did not do, to live in obedience to the law. And all this points to the fact that because the moral law of God is still active in God's New Testament economy, so too is the ever-present reality of sin seriousness. Listen, saints, take away God's law and you take away sin. I read of a pastor this week who said he thinks it's ridiculous that a culture should post the Ten Commandments in the, in the culture. We shouldn't do that, he said. A pastor. We shouldn't do that. Because it's unnecessarily offensive to those who may read it. Well, that's the whole point. Because without the standard of the law of God, we don't know how bad we are. We don't know that we need to be pointed to Christ. And so, saints, just remember this. What was sin in Christ's day is still sin today. In a court, and a vote, and a culture does not have the power to change the law of God. The moral law of God never changes, and therefore redefinition of God's law are impossible. So with that background of the law's continued necessity, that brings us to consider our second point, incorrect responses to God's moral law. There are two, two improper responses to God's law. The first is known as antinomianism. Antinomianism. Nomos in the Greek means law, so anti-nomos, right? These are those who are literally anti-law. And when we spoke a few weeks ago about those in what is called the hyper-grace movement, we were speaking of this group. Antinomians believe that there's no law at all for New Covenant Christians, only grace. They say, quote, the moral law is not binding upon believers in any sense, even in the sense of the rule of life. They also maintain that, quote, a believer may sin with impunity because the grace of God superabounds over his sin. Antinomianism, hyper grace, okay? Well, is that what Paul is advocating? Because they always fly to Romans 6.14. Is that what Paul is advocating in Romans 6.14? You're not under the law, you're under grace. Live whatever way you want to live. You're under grace, baby. What are we doing sitting here in church? You prayed a prayer, didn't you? Go out and frolic. Have a great time. Sit down. (laughs) Go anywhere. That's not Romans 6.14. That's not what Paul is advocating. That's why we have verse 15. What does Paul write in verse 15? Under the Spirit's inspiration, knowing how probably we would read verse 14. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Uh Aha. Not even by the means of grace should we continue to sin. We see that Christ does not tell us that Christians will live under no law. Rather, through Paul, he evidences that the moral law will be the standard by which we are to live. We have a standard. Romans 6.15, then, helps us to understand Romans 6.14. 
Shall we continue on in sin? So in a sermon series on grace, take note again that not even Christians are free from the demands of moral righteousness. That is not the purpose of God's grace to us. Rather, God's grace to us through Christ frees us from our bondage to sin. In fact, Paul speaks of sin as being the master of the unconverted, but Christ is the master of the Christian. The believer must face the fact that salvation actually means a change of masters. Once the servant of sin, the Christian is now committed to a life of practical righteousness. Obedience becomes the key issue. Obedience then to what? Well, to the standard of righteousness represented in God's law. There is no room for antinomianism. Antinomianism stands in contrast to everything that the Bible teaches about Christianity. God expects and commands us. God expects and commands us as Christians. Those of us who claim to Christ as Savior and Lord, we are to live a life of moral purity. We are to live a life of love. That takes us to the second improper response to the law, the legalist. The chief issue of legalism is, is essentially opposed to, to grace and graciousness by a hyper-focus on rules and regulations, many times man-made. So we still do have law to obey as New Covenant Christians, but it's God's law, it's not man's law. God's moral law is not obeyed to become a Christian, rather... It's obeyed because we already are Christians. For example, we know that the Pharisees only kept the letter of the law without any heart concern. As Christians, we're to keep not only the letter, but also the spirit of the law. And that can only be done through the heart. For example, this is why Christ taught the way he did concerning murder and adultery. He tells us that it occurs first in the heart, Matthew 5, 28. Christ uses God's law to evidence the continued fact of sin's seriousness. And in so doing, he shows further the impact of God's moral standard. True Christianity is not just a concern with outward conformity, looking the part. It's also just as important to be focused on the heart. Obedience in and from the heart is God's first and foremost concern. Only Christ can change us from the inside out and thus enable us to obey from the heart. In fact, that's the promise of the new covenant found in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I just want to tell you as I read this to you, the promise of the new covenant, which we find in Ezekiel and which we find in Jeremiah 31, 33, you won't find in a Bible from a pastor who tells you that you're supposed to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Andy Stanley. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Unhitch yourself from the word of God. I'm getting ahead of myself for the series on Jude that we're preaching. But it's amazing to me. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. This is the promise of God in the new covenant. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the promise of the new covenant. It's the description of the new covenant also found in Jeremiah 31, 33. We are changed from the inside out to be able to do what? Live whatever way we want. You know what he says? Follow my decrees and keep my laws. Change must come from the inside out through Christ and the work of his spirit. That enables us to live by God's standard, not man's rules and regulations. 
These truths then are the double-edged flaw of the, of, the, of the legalist. There's real danger to legalism. As one has said, concerning one's disposition, legalism is opposed to being gracious. Ever been with a legalistic person? The most critical people you can be with is a legalist. The most obnoxious people you can be with is a legalist. We're instructed in the word of God to be gracious to one another. Paul writes in Romans 14, 1, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment, note this, on disputable matters. Sadly, there are those who feel so strongly about their own, for example, eschatological, eschatological position that they will run you out of their fellowship before allowing you to express another biblical possibility. Many legalistic believers today make the, end, the error of demanding unqualified adherence to their own particular biblical interpretations and even to their own traditions. For example, there are those who feel that to be spiritual, one must simply avoid tobacco, alcoholic beverages, dancing and movies, etc. But the reality is, brethren, the truth is that avoiding these things is no guarantee of spirituality. I don't think we should traffic in them. But just because somebody doesn't drink or smoke or dance doesn't mean that their heart is where it needs to be with, with Christ. And we can't confuse those things. Listen to Romans 14, 7 through 8. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. So the kingdom of God is not comprised of man's laws, but of righteousness, which is based upon God's law. What is righteousness? In the most frequent and most important biblical usage, righteousness is conceived as judged by the standard of God's holy law, which is derived from his holy character. And listen, it's summarily comprehended in the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments. So note that Paul states here, there's still a standard in the new covenant for the Christian to live by. It is the standard of righteousness, which is seen in his never-changing law. The standard is not man's additional rules to the code of conduct that God has already given to us. That brings us to our third and final point. The dangers of legalism. The dangers of legalism. Just as there are serious dangers in the hyper-grace movement, there are equally serious spiritual dangers with legalism. Let's briefly consider these four. Number one, the first danger of legalism is the popular misconception that legalism is only defined by anything that is added to in addition to God's law. Any man-made addition to God's commands is indeed a form of legalism. And this form of legalism must be avoided. Yet legalists can also misuse the legitimate word of God. How so? When they have an attitude that is opposed to grace, seen particularly when they are not gracious with other Christians about the law, particularly as Paul writes in Romans 14, 1, about those areas which may be of some dispute. Paul writes here, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Now, we're only going to say a little bit about disputable matters now because, God willing, we'll address this in our series on Jude. For today, let me just say that legalism can be seen in an ungracious spirit which demands complete adherence to one's own biblical interpretations in which there can and should likely be some latitude. 
And here I'll also quickly say that while we are to be gracious over disputable matters, we cannot accept heresy about uh, matters which can not be of legitimate dispute. And we'll come to talk about that. The second danger of legalism is that it can lead to a belief in justification through works. Legalism does not consist in yielding obedience to the law. Rather, it is to seek justification and good standing with God through the merit of the law, through works done in obedience to law instead of by faith in Jesus Christ. This is most often the Roman Catholic perspective, and it is refuted by Paul very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The third danger of legalism is that it can add faith plus works. Now, here is our problem. Here's the danger of what we've been addressing in the evangelical world. Legalists can focus on the appearance and the performance rather than the heart from which these behaviors flow, as we've said. So I come back to this issue of the heart here because it's significant. As one source comments, legalists may appear to be righteous and spiritual, but legalism ultimately fails to accomplish God's purposes because it's an outward performance instead of an inward change. So you can have a legalist who doesn't smoke or drink, but he treats his wife like dirt. And he thinks he's a good Christian. Because he doesn't smoke. And he doesn't drink. I don't think you should smoke. And I don't drink. You, that's Romans 14. You do what you're going to do on that. I, it's, it's, right? But let's not pretend that not doing those things without Christ is of merit. It's not. And I picked that because we've seen that too often in the counseling setting. Appearance of spirituality and appearance of righteousness and totally ignoring what God says in what I would say are not disputable matters. The real things of Christianity. As Jesus warned in Matthew 15, 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's the heart of a legalist. As Karn states, this is the Galatian error of preaching faith plus something else to make one acceptable to God. At its worst, this form of legalism degenerates into salvation by works. At best, it removes the solid basis of Christian assurance, for it drives a sincere believer more and more into himself to examine the quality of his work or of his faith rather than to the all-sufficient merits of Christ. And this is the problem with this area of legalism. It never makes us satisfied with what Christ has done on our behalf. We always navel-gaze. What more should I be doing? What more didn't I do? We find ourselves in this little dark corner of Christian doubt and fear. Up from the grave he arose... He called me from my own grave. I rose, went forth, and followed him. He's sufficient to robe me in his righteousness. God forgives me through Christ, your new creation. That's the sum of Christianity. And the problem with this sort of legalism, which tries to add our works to the merits of Christ, is that we end up navel-gazing because our works, as we said at the very beginning, will never be enough because we're just as dependent upon the grace of God in our obedience as we are in our disobedience. So you're in trouble if in any point of your Christian life the focus is more on you than on Jesus. You're in trouble. 
The last danger of legalism is that some think that legalism is any continued obedience to the law of God because we're now under grace. People have said that, by the way, to me. They say, um, you preach? You preach obedience to the law of God? Yes. Oh, that's legalism. Oh. No. Because that's not what Paul is saying in Romans 6.14. As we've seen, living in God's grace does not remove the standard of God's law, nor our, our need to obey it. So we as God's children are still subject to the laws of his realm, and out of a response to his grace, we should obey in a loving and grateful way. We are still to regard God's law as commands to be obeyed, not just merely expressions of his desires. Let me just make this final comment. As we think of that content. Do you know why legalists. Are some of the most critical people in all the world. Because they're living by their own standard. They put away the law of God. And they're living by their own standard. And they've forgotten that it's the law of God. Which shows us how we've been forgiven by Christ. And they lose that understanding, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. Those who have been forgiven much do what? Forgive much. It's not someone that holds to the law of God that is ungracious. It's the legalist who is ungracious because he doesn't hold to the law of God. You see that? And by the way, that's the other problem of legalism... If you put away God's law, you'll have to come up with some kind of law and you make up your own law. And that only leads to judgmentalists and criticalists too. So again, as Christians, we're not excused from obedience to God's commands. Rather, God's grace provides what we need to help us to obey his commands and provides us what we need when we disobey his commands. Bridges is helpful when he says this. The fact is that we do have a duty and an obligation to God. He's the sovereign ruler of this world. And in that capacity, he's laid down the precepts to be fully obeyed. As we've seen, God has already given us in his moral law, and we find it particularly expressed in the Ten Commandments. Because we've already been given God's commands, we, we can be kept from falling into the dangerous trap of legalism. The fundamental character of God's law has not changed. What has changed is our reason for obedience, our motive has changed. So thus, as we prepare for the table today, I remind you, we've considered defining not under the law, two improper responses to God's law, and the dangers of legalism. And next time we approach the table, uh, will not be in July, God spares us, but it'll be in August. We will address that holiness, which is the result of obedience also comes to us as a gift of God's grace. So by way of application, as we prepare for the Lord's table, again we may ask, if we're saved and kept by grace, where does living by obedience to commands fit in? We know that just because we live in God's grace, that does not give us the freedom to live in a sinful way which would deny him. So the answer is God's law as a rule of life is not opposed to grace. Rather, used in the right sense, it is the handmaid of grace. Or to use 
another analogy? It's like a sheepdog that keeps driving us back into the fold of grace when we stray out into the wilderness of works. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's the mark of the believer. Not living in his own way, but living according to Christ's way. And dependent upon Christ in his obedience. And dependent upon Christ in his disobedience. That's the part of the purpose of this table. To make us examine if we are walking as Jesus did. Perhaps you know that you can't come to the table today. You need to make that right. And I would encourage you to do so. So let's take a moment to think about these truths. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make necessary application to each one of our hearts today. You know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would help this to be a sweet time of communion with you. As we are reminded of our complete and total dependence upon your grace to us in Christ Jesus as we remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, as we give God thanks for this truth, that your grace is greater than our sin. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.